Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 377 of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is sponsored by my new book, The Complete Compliance Handbook. This book is a one-volume compilation of practical and targeted compliance solutions that you can use for years to come and will be an essential guide for everyone in the compliance community, compliance officers, legal professionals, senior managers, board members, government prosecutors, and regulators. In less than 10 minutes a day, busy compliance practitioners can master key compliance subjects in less than a month by following each chapter's regimen of up to 30 daily readings and bullet point summaries on a specific topic. The Complete Compliance Handbook is available for pre-order on my website, www.fcpacompliancereport.com, and will be released in late April by the publisher, Compliance Week. Today, I have with me Tom Sporkin. Tom is a partner at Buckley Sandler in Washington, and he is a whistleblower lawyer. He is a former chief of Office of Market Intelligence at the Securities and Exchange Commission. We continue the discussions I've been having about the recent Digital Realty Trust versus Summers case, and we discuss the ruling in terms of not only what it means for whistleblower protection, but Tom also talks about it, how it interplays with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act and protections that are available for whistleblowers under SOX. It's a fascinating exploration of all of the protections and benefits available to whistleblowers under federal law. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again for another episode. And today you're in for a real treat because I have Tom Sporkin with me. Tom is a partner at Buckley Sandler, a law firm in Washington, and he has what I would characterize as a whistleblower practice. Tom uh, was at the SEC for uh, over 20 years, ending up as the chief at the Office of Market Intelligence. We were at a conference last week and had the chance to um, talk about the digital realty trust versus Summers case. So I asked him if he would come on the podcast and talk about it. So, Tom, with that fairly long-winded introduction, thank you and uh, welcome. Thanks, Tom, and thanks for having me here today. So this case really has uh, a lot of implications in many layers, many levels, many groups, uh, and you are uh, an attorney who represents whistleblowers before the SEC, so I thought it might be great if I could get your perspective, maybe starting with um, how did this case get to the court? It seemed to have a, a winding path, or at least the issues did. Sure, and and I think the, the, the we need to start back in 2002 when... Um, when the Sarbanes-Oxley Act came into existence. Um, that was really the first big whistleblower provision um, that, was, that was inserted into the securities laws, and that was a retaliation provision. And as you recall, that came about because Sharon Watkins, um, who was an employee at Enron at the time, had identified what she believed were suspicious um, accounting practices. And so she sent an email to Ken Lay, who was on the, uh, the chair uh, on the board of directors and the chairman. And Ken Lay was kind of uh, not really up to the task of having day-to-day management and didn't really look at it closely enough. Um, but when it came after Enron blew up and it came out later in, in her congressional testimony, she said I, she was scared to give it to skilling uh, and Fastow, the CFO uh, and the CEO of the company, because they, she was scared she would be retaliated against. So 
Sarbanes-Oxley Act was designed to prov- to um, allow for and encourage individuals who might otherwise have been fearful of retaliation to report um, observations of wrongdoing up the chain. In contrast, in 2011, um, in reaction to missing the Marco Polis tip, uh, the Dodd-Frank uh, Act included um, the, in the whistleblower provision, it was primarily designed as a reporting provision to the SEC and, an, and a bounty provision, so you could actually make money for the first time. And it was, it was the, the retaliation provisions were really looked at as um, part, uh, um, uh, they weren't as important as the, as the reporting provisions. They were meant to help people um, feel like they wouldn't get retaliated against um, uh, if they reported information to the commission. Um, however, um, so, so it's important to understand that this was primarily a bounty provision with, with a tacked on retaliation provision. Um, the, subsequent to the, it, it, nevertheless, there is a provision in the, in the retaliation side of, of the legislation that says you will, uh, you are a whistleblower if you report, if you report information under the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. That's in direct contrast to the other provision in, in, in Dodd-Frank that says you must report information to the commission. And that's really how courts after 2011 dealt with this issue, primarily district courts, but then there were three major uh, circuit court opinions that dealt with this issue. First, the Fifth Circuit didn't give deference to the SEC's rule, uh, and they said that um, an internal, if somebody doesn't report to the SEC before they're fired, they don't get the Dodd-Frank retaliation provisions. Then the Second Circuit said, no, we disagree with that. And they, in a split decision, the Second Circuit said, uh, we are going to give deference to the SEC and their rulemaking, and we are going to give retaliation protections to people, even if they report after they're fired. Um, then in 2017, the Ninth Circuit in the Digital Real TV Summers case said, we're going to go, uh, we're, we're also going to agree with the um, Second Circuit. We are going to accord retaliation provisions to someone, even if they report after they're fired. Um, but that, again, was a split decision. And that then provided the avenue for the Supreme Court to finally decide this issue once and for all. So uh, on the court's ruling itself, uh, what, what were your thoughts? So the Supreme Court unanimously decided not to give deference to the SEC and said, you, black and white, you must report uh, for, to get the retaliation provisions under Dodd-Frank, you must report your observations to the SEC before you're fired. Um, the court dealt with all of, all of the background that I just described, the court dealt with in the opinion and said, look, primarily the SOX Act is the retaliation provision um, that, that, that was primarily devised to protect people in reporting observations uh, internally. SOX, uh, the Dodd-Frank Act, in, in, in contrast, was meant to help uh, lubricate people to report information to the SEC uh, to win bounty awards. Um, and so the court dealt with those two competing um, provisions, um, the one that says to the commission, requirement of to the commission versus the um, other provision that says in making disclosures that are required and protected under Sarbanes-Oxley Act. And the court said, no, it has to be to the commission. Um, SOX, making SOX disclosures do not um, necessarily in and of themselves protect you uh, or, or get you the retaliation provisions. 
So the uh, one of the things, Tom, I've been exploring is the implications of this case. And although you did not work in the office of the whistleblower while you were at the SEC, you were certainly aware of whistleblower tips that would come in. Uh, could you really talk about how the SEC uses that information? Yeah, well, and I think it's important to, to understand where corporate America was when these rules were being uh, promulgated. So if you recall, Dodd-Frank comes up in 2010, and the mandate is on the, uh, the SEC to write rules to, to, um, to, to, to effectuate the, the, the statute. And so I can't tell you, when I was there, I was uh, one of the um, uh, uh, supervisors and, and leaders in the rule writing, uh, the Dodd-Frank rule writing. And I can't tell you the number of um, lobbyists, um, corporate um, attorneys that came in and, and, and asked us to please add a provision that required internal reporting as um, an element um, of, of um, uh, it, it being being allowed to be a whistleblower, a, a bounty a bounty seeking whistleblower, they said, please make sure that you put a provision that says in, um, people must report internally. Well, that wasn't um, consistent with the statute, so we couldn't do that. But what we did for the corporate America is we said, look, we're going to give you a hundred twenty day rule, which says whistleblowers who report internally. Um, are still eligible for the SEC award and they keep their place in line if they um, uh, are loyal to their company and report internally. So that would be something that a corporation could advertise to its employees. Look, we will, you know, we will take your matter seriously and we will log when you report it if you then want to go to the SEC. The other thing we gave them was tacking, which we said all the information that a that uh, corporation does uh, accumulate if it does an internal investigation will get tacked onto whatever submission the individual eventually makes to the SEC, which will then give them a bump up in in the um, determination of what percentage of an award they might get at the SEC. And finally, we gave them uh, another gift, which was what I call the bump up, which is if you do report internally, um, you you just generally when the SEC evaluates your tip, you will get a slight bump up. So. Those were some of the gifts that we gave corporate America as part of the rule writing. But I got to tell you, they didn't, I don't think they really cared. What they really wanted was that obligation to internally report. So this is a long way of saying that I don't think corporate America has ever been happy with this. And I refer to the digital realty case as digital realty won the battle, but corporate America lost the war. And I think a lot of corporations who hire labor lawyers to fight these whistleblower cases, they look at these um, with, um, you know, with, with, with very narrow, um, you know, how this impacts us now, not how this is going to impact corporate America. And so they fight, they, they engage in, in, you know, scorched earth tactics to fight their own whistle, their own internal employees. Um, and what they don't understand is that this, this has the potential to create a scenario in which, um, employees are no longer going to trust that going internally is going to, is in their best interest. So I, I think that's important to note. Um, and what I saw at the SEC were I saw, you know, a handful of good tips a day after the whistleblower provisions came into, um, came to pass. And I got to believe that now after, um, after this decision, you're going to see a lot more, um, a lot more reporting to the SEC. And Tom, I'm not sure whether it's all going to be um, valuable reporting. I think a lot of it might just be um, 
in, in anticipatory and protective reporting that, in, that employees do because now they know and every whistleblower lawyer out there knows and is advising employees who call them, you've got to get to the SEC immediately so that you get these um, retaliation provisions. Well, Tom, in addition to some of the difficulties that you've articulated uh, that I think this decision and uh, will bring to uh, corporate America and compliance programs generally, I think it also puts a lot more pressure on the Securities and Exchange Commission and because of that, a lot more pressure on people like yourself to really engage in a, a vetting process so that when you submit a claim to the Securities and Exchange Commission, the commission has a, a high degree of confidence that someone uh, experienced with a jaundiced eye has, has looked at this, has looked at the evidence, has looked at the documentation, um, and the filing is not simply not simply to protect themselves from retaliation, but to bring substantive uh, uh, information to the SEC. And I see someone like yourself as probably having to, to vet uh, just a lot more claims now with do you sense that? It, and it, 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 your cha- the challenge you point out is, is very accurate. Um, as uh, whistleblower lawyers get inundated with more, um, you know, uh, uh, contact by people, by, by employees of public companies, um, the whistleblower attorney himself or herself has to be very, um, you know, as you say, just naturally skeptical because a lot of times, you know, whistleblowers have an ax to grind. Um, you know, I can't, I can't tell you the number of times that is, you know, in, in, in my practice, both at the SEC and now here, I got to tell you, you can probably put on one hand, count on one hand, the times that there wasn't an ax to grind. Um, so really when you vet a whistleblower, you, you look at whether, you know, they're the, they're not, they're the, the, the legitimate meritorious whistleblower, as opposed to the opportunistic whistleblower. And that, that is tough, and it's important for people like me to keep to, to maintain a good reputation at the SEC, so that when I do bring a matter to the SEC, they immediately, um, you know, their their head their their head perks up, and they say, "Oh, this is from Tom Spork, and I'm going to take a close look because he only gives us good stuff." So, from that perspective, you know, if a whistleblower lawyer cares about his reputation, he now has to do he or she has to do a better job. And the SEC, you know, the the, the prior director of enforcement put out, it has a speech from 2016, I think September of 2016, where he specifically says, we rely on good whistleblower lawyers to help us do our job. So one of the things that uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier was the interplay between Sarbanes-Oxley and Dodd-Frank. And I was wondering if you could uh, kind of go through uh, not only how those two statutes interplay, but the protections that a whistleblower might be able to avail themselves of under Sarbanes-Oxley that uh, don't exist in Dodd-Frank and how you might advise someone to consider their steps. Okay, so not all is lost, as the Supreme Court points out. Sox is a very powerful statute. Um, the only difference, the, the two main differences between Sox and Dodd-Frank are in, in SOX, um, you have to report, you can be fired and then report your retaliation and still be protected in SOX, but you only have 180 days to do it. You got to report it initially to the Department of Labor, uh, and then you have to wait if you want to get, there's a kickout provision that allows you to subsequently file your action in federal court, uh, which you have to wait, I believe, another 180 days. So not all is lost. The, the, the kicker is you've got to get 
um, something on file with the Department of Labor that that articulates um, how you were retaliated against and what your what your observations of, of the violations were within 180 days. And sometimes um, what happens is employees wait too long before they call a lawyer. You know, they, they have second and third thoughts. They have doubts and they finally pick up the phone, call a lawyer. And those rights have that time frame has lapsed. So that's the first big issue, that, 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 the, the big, big um, uh, uh, element that, that differs. The second is <clears throat> um, Dodd-Frank, uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's, so it, I'm sorry, let me also say Dodd-Frank has a three-year statute of limitations um, and, a, and, a, and a maximum of a six-year if you go from the date of discovery. Uh, of the violation. So that's a much longer period of time for, for, for a whistleblower and a, and a whistleblower lawyer to get involved and, and report to the, and, and um, uh, you file a, file a retaliatory case. The second area is double back pay. Dodd-Frank has a, a richer provision as far as when you do the multiplier and you, get, and you figure out your damages uh, that you claim in, in, in your case, Dodd-Frank allows for double back pay. So if you're an employee and you're making 150000 a year, you can immediately sue as part of the back pay portion for $300,000. SOX is single back pay. Um, those, are the, those are the real differences in the statute. Um, there, are little, there are other you know, minor differences which talk about um, the re- there's a, both are reasonable belief standards, so you don't really need the violation. It's just a reasonable belief in the eye of the um, complainer um, that there was a violation of law. Um, those are pretty similar the way they um, uh, each of the statutes articulates that that provision. Um, it's really those two things. It's the statute of limitations and the double back pay. So with uh, those two statutes in place and overlapping and, uh, and, and with both overlapping in different provisions, uh, how does uh, a person proceed through all this, start, kind of starting with the first conversation with yourself? Yeah, so this is a weird, this, this is an interesting area. Dodd-Frank socks. Um, in, in, uh, corporate employee whistleblowing is a very, it's a very dynamic um, area and it requires, I believe, a very sophisticated lawyer in two areas, securities law and employment law. And if you don't, if you don't combine those two disciplines, uh, um, you, it's, it's possible that it, a potential uh, whistleblower could, could not get the best strategic advice on how to proceed. Um, it's, so if you think about it, this, the underlying substantive observations are securities related. So if you're, the, if you're in the um, accounting office of a public company and you see suspicious conduct like invoices that you think are uh, doctored, um, if you see evidence that there are so, that um, uh, undocumented side agreements or round trip transactions. If you're getting pressure to approve um, accounting treatment on a transaction that you don't believe has been accurately documented, um, those are securities law uh, uh, related observations. So you need a securities lawyer. At the same time, you also need somebody to advise you on employment law. And now with these retaliation provisions, you know, the, the, the complexity with these court decisions, you need, you know, kind of this, is the federalization of, you know, of, of employment law in, in this space. And so you need um, someone who knows these, these retaliation provisions 
So you got to have somebody that does both. Someone like me um, or another sophisticated securities lawyer who also understands these, these employment law issues is somebody that I think it's critical that, that um, an employee who's going through this dilemma um, you know, comes to for good advice. You, um, you really, the, uh, the first person I've, I've also heard talk about the, the securities law aspect and that while the, uh, certainly the filings under Sarbanes-Oxley and Dodd-Frank impact securities law, it's really much more going to the analysis of the underlying facts and the claims. So I think that uh, that's an important distinction that uh, many listeners have not really focused on before, which is you must understand securities law, not just to file the claims, but even to understand them. Exactly. Can, can I mention one other thing? I sure. think reputation um, you know, mo- the, 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 the SEC found when it was writing these rules and the Supreme Court even states it in its opinion in the digital realty case that 80 percent of whistleblowers want to go internal. They want to report their information internally. People, corporate employees, their main concern is they don't want they don't want stress in their life. They want to do their job. They want to work hard and they want to do a good job. And when they're confronted with these dilemmas, you know, with with um, leadership that's trying to cook the books uh, or, you know, maybe not disclose things the right way. Those are huge dilemmas and huge points of stress for these otherwise good employees that just want to, you know, come in, do their job and go home and spend time with their family. So it's critical um, that, 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 you know, these employees understand that if they get caught up in something and they don't report it and they don't protect themselves by calling a lawyer and understanding what their rights are, um, they could be, they could be um, caught up in all of this and they could, you know, have to testify in front of the SEC. And it's better that they understand their rights and responsibilities and obligations beforehand so that they can be placed in the best light possible in the best position possible to defend, not just get an award and have retaliation provisions, but to defend what they've done at the corporation. Uh, if they, you know, if they have this dilemma where they can either look the other way and approve the invoice and approve the accounting treatment, or they can, they can stand up and say to the, you know, to the, to the sales department, uh, I can't approve this because this internal control wasn't followed here. So that dilemma is huge and it's, it shouldn't be overlooked. This is really what drives um, employees and causes stress. So, Tom, um, it's been a few weeks now since the decision has come out. Certainly, um, uh, people like you and I have been talking about it uh, in conferences and social media. But I was wondering, have you seen uh, any real changes yet, either uh, in the number of um, uh, reports to the commission or whistleblowing tips to the commission or any questions at uh, your law firm or your practice about uh, things that have come up since this decision? I have not um, so far seen an uptick uh, in my practice, um, but I do suspect that as more and more um, uh, articles come out on the internet and this and this becomes wider wider known that that we will. Um, the only real thing that's impacted me is I've had a um, uh, uh, file a joint motion in court um, earlier this week uh, to dismiss a um, a, a Dodd Frank claim. Um, uh, unf- uh, luckily we have the Sox claim because we did do, we, we made sure that our, our, um, uh, client, uh, who didn't come to us be, who 
was fired before he came to us, but within the 180 days. So we did button that up. But the only thing I, the only thing, the only way this has impacted me so far is I had to, dis, I had to agree to dismiss a claim in, in one of our retaliation cases in federal court. So, Tom, we're uh, unfortunately near the end of our time, but I was wondering if uh, someone wanted to find out uh, either uh, more about yourself or the law firm, uh, how would they do so? The best way to contact me is through my law firm uh, email address. It's tsporkin at buckleysandler.com. Well, Tom, this has been a fascinating exploration from your perspective of the the Digital Realty Trust versus Summers case, and I hope uh, we can continue the conversation in the future. Thanks, Tom. I would enjoy that. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only weekly FCPA and compliance podcast taking a look at current events. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, and I hope you'll join me again next week. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.